Hi and welcome to The Final Whistle. This is Deepan and I'm joined today by a very familiar co-host, Zaul Raushan. Thanks Deepan for having me. Always a pleasure to be speaking to football luminaries from the yesteryears of the local league and they don't come much bigger than the guests you've got for us today. That's correct. Uh, he's coached all around the globe, including at one stage, uh, the Thai national team. But most importantly for us, he's the head coach who led Home United to the 2003 S-League and Cup double before adding the 2005 Singapore Cup to the club's cabinet. Uh, welcome to the show, Steve Darby. Thank you. It's uh, great to be back among Singapore football fans. Yes, uh, a, a great, great pleasure in having you here. I mean, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time now. Uh, I think when we talk about Home United, you're, you're one of the first few names that come up because of your history with the club. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to the conversation we're going to have today, but let's start off at the start uh, in terms of your coaching career. Tell us, how did you become a coach? Well, basically, uh, you know, some people say there were an injury caused them to stop. Mine was, my playing career was stopped by a severe lack of ability, <laughs> <laughs> which basically meant, you know, I, I, I played, I was a youth team player with Tamir Rovers. I'd played for like Liverpool schools and teams like this. Uh, and I played semi-pro at different areas. But the reality was I was never going to be a great player. Got to be honest. Uh, but I always felt that the work I was being given by other t- coaches, because in those days there wasn't really much coaching going on, wasn't good. I always felt like I could do better. But you don't really be brave enough to say that because you know you're not you're 16, 17, 18. You're not going to question the coaches you have or the managers as they're called in England. But I, I was lucky enough, I went to Phys Ed College um, while I was playing semi-pro and I learned how to become a coach. Uh, and it was a step in the right, I did not much like coaching badges and it was a step into the world. And I, I found out I was probably a better coach than I was a player. Nice, Steve. And you obviously received the education to be a coach at quite a young age and this is quite close back to home. Then how did that whole move to Asia almost transpire? Well, it's, it's strange, Ray. It's coming to home, I was working at Sheffield Wednesday. I was I was a youth team coach. I was working about 80 hours a week, travelling all over the country in freezing cold weather, hmm. different planet in terms of the weather. Uh, and I got a call from Robert Alberts, who'd been coached at, at Home United. Uh, and he said, look, they're looking for a, looking for a, a coach, head coach. Oh, well, and it was a four. It was four times the salary I was on at uh, wow. at Sheffield Wednesday. Plus, it was warm, which was a godsend. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I'd known the club because I I I coached Johor FA, uh, who are now JDT, though mm. they are now JDT is a different planet to Johor FA mm. uh, in terms of facilities and wealth. Uh, they have literally put their money where their mouth is and they have you know succeeded I think that it credit to the game in Malaysia but we um I decided then it was a time chance to go uh took the chance because in football you've got to take chances if you don't take them you're just going to end up going nowhere and the reality is you know sometimes you'll get sacked sometimes you'll leave you know that, that is a reality of, of the game I mean I have to accept that uh, and I thought, right, I'll take the chance. And I'll be honest, it was a great decision. I had a fantastic time for three years at home, United. I would say wow. I enjoyed two years, 10 months. 
the last two months <laughs> last two months weren't the best I'll tell you later <laughs> yeah I, and of course you know looking back uh, you did join Home United I believe in 2002 is that correct yeah I came in in a sense I was lucky and there is luck in football believe me and I was lucky that I came in like the last three or four games of 2002 season hmm. so I, I couldn't do anything wrong really uh, the team were we're never going to win the league and they were entrenched at second place. So I had a chance to try three or four different teams out in those mm. last games because we weren't going to you know, win or lose anything different. And it was good. And I got to know that the good thing was I realised I had a core of very talented players, really good players. Uh, but also, which may, may sound different to what normally coaches say, I, I inherited a couple of fantastic staff uh, and these these two lads were like the glue that kept the team together because the team was in many ways famous for its team spirit. Mm. And uh, one was Rosley Dollar, who was we called him the equipment CEO, which is a posh word for for kit man. <laughs> and he also not many people know that before the 2003 Cup final, he made the final speech. Wow, I, asked wow. him to ma- I asked him to make the speech in the dressing room before the lads went out. And I'm not joking. Those lads would have ran through the wall at Jalan Basar for, for Rosley. And the other fellow was Francis Thomas, who was an assistant coach, goalkeeper coach. I don't know if you ever saw MASH, where there was a guy called Radar. He was like Radar. He knew everybody in Singapore wow. and everything. Mm-hmm. If I wanted something, he arranged it. He got it. And it taught me that you have to adapt to the culture of the nation uh, because if I'm a Matsale or Angmo coming in, it doesn't matter what I think or do. I've got to adapt to the culture where I live and, and it's it's all it's, you know it's different all over. I mean, just you just travel a couple hundred miles away, you're in Kelantan. Mm. Different completely to Singapore. I had a fantastic teacher there called Mazita, and she taught me about the culture of Kelantan football, a bit like Rosalie and Francis did. Uh, so that's where I learned, in, in a sense, that to be a coach in Asia as a foreigner, you've got to be a bit like bamboo. Uh, and by that, I mean you've got to be able to bend uh, because you've got to be able to bend a little here, a little there. Don't snap. And snapping might be when the president picks your team or getting involved in match fixing. You know, don't mm. keep your principles, but at times be realistic and realize some things you're not going to win, such as when my striker at Parak rang me up to say, I can't come training, coach. My mum says I'm taking a shopping. Now, he was an international <laughs> and he was an international footballer on very, very good wages. Mm. And he said, Coach, you can find me. You can drop me, but if my mum says I'm going shopping with her, I'm taking her shopping, I have to go. And I suddenly realised I wasn't going to win that one. So Mm. I didn't want to drop him because he scored goals. And if he scores goals, he gets you the bonus. So you have to learn to adapt around the situation. And it's it's different everywhere you go, different in Thailand, different in Kalantan, different in Laos. So being like bamboo is a great lesson. And I, I learned that very early on, uh, probably by the, I'll use the word manager uh, yeah. in Johor. He taught me that. A very intelligent man, Ahmed Mohammed. Uh, and he showed me that, look, you just can't go charging in in Asia because there's only one winner and it ain't going to be you. There's a lot of foreign coaches who, who say goodbye very quickly. Yep, that, that's definitely true. Uh, one thing that I want to pick up on uh, that you mentioned was, that, you know, when you came to Home United, you, you felt like, 
you had a, a good pool of talent. Uh, who are these uh, talents that you refer to when you first stepped in? You know, who did you look at and realize, wow, I, I do have a squad here? Well, the first two were the two rocks at the back, uh, Eddie Iskander and Subramani. You know, they were both solid as anything as defenders and you need a good defense no matter what you do you've got to have you've got to stop giving goals away that's the first thing you ever do uh, and these two lads were great but not only were they good on the pitch they were great off the pitch uh, mm. I never had a problem in three years in the dressing room because if there was they never let me find out about it they dealt mm. with it first and if it got past them Okay, I'd have to deal with it, but very rarely got past those two. Two different characters, you know, and that's something later I could probably say to you that we had in, in that dressing room different nationalities, different religions, and there was never any racial or religious problem in the three years, not once, you know, and uh, it, it was like, you know, we had the glue of Rosalie and Francis, but we also had this team spirit that made football was first, and nothing else really mattered whether you were Indian, Malay, Chinese, Thai, all sorts. We had, you know, Brazilian. So, and it worked great. And it was down to people like that. But I had unsung heroes as well, like Siva Kuma and Adil. Uh, Adil, who's now coaching in Kedah, who I think, and I think she should be possibly your next Singapore national coach. You know, if you're going to go local, why not? You know, and you had other people. I had two wide men who worked so hard. One was Azabaxin, unsung hero again, didn't get much praise. The other was Sutty, Sutty Sussomkit. Yeah, and what a character he was. He used to light up training. Everything was a laugh, a smile, and hard as nails, these lads. And of course, you've got to, you know, you, people say, oh, you did well, coach. Well, I did do well, but I had three fellas up front called Indra, Perez, and Egmar. <laughs> and, you know, and if one didn't score, the other two did. And yeah. you know, they scored goals. And that is such that's the most difficult part of the game. And they were brilliant at it, all three of them. Again, you couldn't get three more different characters, uh, but they blended well. They were never selfish, they were never, you know, uh wanting to be better than the other. They just worked hard, all three of them, uh, and basically scored goals. And we only had 16 players at home because, mm. because of that stupid salary cap. You know, I, I'll be honest, I tried to cheat the salary cap. I wanted to employ Perez's wife as my maid. You know, she wasn't going to oh. go there, but yeah. I wanted to you know, get some extra money into Perez uh, and other players. But because Home United were the minister, ministry team, they, they, they were honest. They were so straight and honest. Uh, I couldn't do it. So we, used to, we decided that... Uh, that 16 players, and I used to have three or four young lads from the, mm. the Prime League, I think it was called then. Yep. And these three or four lads would come on and they would run and run. Mm. And when they got the ball, they had to give it to someone like Sutty or give it to Egmar. That's what their job was. Uh, so, you know, that's how we worked it out. A, a small squad of high quality. We, we, I think the, the squad was $1 under the salary cap. We wow. did it right down to the dollar. Um, mm. But that was the only way we could do it. And to be honest, it worked. You know? Yeah, you, you talk about the fact that it worked. Uh, but, you know, I have to play devil's advocate almost here. But 
Um, did you feel like you could have achieved more with the team? You know, was there anything that was missing or, or could have been done better to ensure that there could have been a dynasty almost? Oh, absolutely. Then that would be get rid of the salary cap. Mm. You know, it, it, we got to the semi-final of the AFC Cup, the furthest any team had ever done before. And that was on the 16 players. You know, I, I brought in players like Amos Boone and Sassy Kuma who were paid virtually nothing, but they were good characters. I wanted to have strong men in the team, strong characters, and these people like that came in to really supplement the squad. But if you're going to kick on into the AFC, the AFC level, which we we were nominated team of the year for the AFC, top three in, in Asia, wow. which is incredible for what, what was, was happening then. Uh, but we, we did it. But if we'd had some more money, we could have had a few more good players. And then we could have become a, a bit like, is it Lions Sailors, they call them now? Or yeah, Lions like City J- Sailors. Yeah, yeah. yeah, or JDT. You know, they're not impinged on by a salary cap. They mm. get the best players. And and then it's up to the other teams to pull up. Uh, didn't happen. That, that was the biggest impingement to me, that the, the FA would not allow us to get better. Steve, just to pick up on something you just said, you brought in players who were good characters, who had good attitude. I just want to understand the coaching philosophy there almost. As a coach, when you recruit players, we've heard recently that Jürgen Klopp is quick to identify players based on attitude first, more than ability. For you as a coach, how important is the attitude that a player brings to the team? Purely because of the harmony and things like that. So do you look for attitude first? Oh, absolutely. Basically, I think you coach the person. You don't coach the player. Uh, and if you've got it, and most of the best players I've worked with, and I'm talking about high-level internationals, uh, were good people. You know, they weren't idiots or clowns. There's very few lazy, uh, bad lads now who can get, get away with it. I mean, there's a famous story of Romario, who was always late for training, mm. and Bobby Robson was going to kick him out. Mm. And the captain of the team at uh, PSV, Eindhoven, came up to Bobby Robson and said, no, don't kick him out, coach. We'll deal with him. He gets me my bonus every week. Now, there's not many <laughs> yeah, there's not many Romarios around in the world. So I, I really think you have to have good people. I worked with Brian Robson and Peter Reid, you know, two of the most high-level players you can get. And you couldn't ask some more humble people than that. I was lucky enough to work with Nicholas and Elka in um, in India. Now, the image of Nicholas and Elka is a bad lad. He wasn't. He was humble. He was shy, great professional, hardworking. And that was a fantastic example to the young Indian lads in the ISL team in Mumbai. So we were, you know, I couldn't agree more with you. You've got to have good people around you because good people when it gets really tough, they don't start backstabbing. They don't start mm. moaning and whinging. They get on with it. And that's where you, you talked about Klopp, people like Milner, Henderson. Mm. You know, they're obviously, Van Dyke. they're obviously good people. You can tell that. I don't know them personally, but you can see that they're good characters. Yeah, you, you talk about these good characters. Um, you know, my question would be, you know, how would you identify them, especially if they are from an opposition team? Uh, so you talked about Sasi Kumar earlier, you know, you thought uh, he would bring good leadership or he, he was a good man to have around the squad. How would you identify that? Well, what I did was, I, I make no bones about it, I listened to some senior players. I, I, I'd look at a player 
Uh, and like you could see, Suri Suksomkit was top class. You know, you just great player. But I made questions about him. I used to ask, I asked to ask players, what do you like to play against? Hmm. It's the oh, it was murder. You, you couldn't stop him. Uh, so you build up a little background. Then I'd use people like Francis. I'd say on oh, Rosley, tell me what he's like. Find out for me because they could find out far easier through the local network. Mm. You've got to have local knowledge, and you know I'll be honest. Uh, I needed a, a cover for centre back. I pulled in Sassy, and I had spoken to the senior players. Is he a good lad? I knew of him. You know, the shoulder of God, obviously. I knew <laughs> of that, but he, he was he was obviously older and on the way down. Uh, but. I knew that he wouldn't let me down and he never let me down in every game he played. Uh, so that's what you need. You, you do your local knowledge and you rely on people who know better than you. And it, it's often when a national coach comes in, I always, always try to get a local assistant uh, because they know things that I don't know. And it might take me six months. You know, I was a better coach in my third year at home than I was in my first because I knew the people, I knew the league, I mm. knew the game at what goes on. Yeah, I knew I knew who was fixing, I knew who wasn't. <laughs> you know, that was and that's, that's another thing I would do. I was offered two players who I was told were fixers. Uh oh. so I knocked them back. Mm. Good players, but mm. I've been told that they could they could possibly, I'll use that word, or allegedly be evolved in fixing. So I just said, no, I don't want them. They're like cancers mm. in the dressing room. Don't take mm. them. Don't care how good they are. Yeah. Uh, uh, one thing I want to point out, I and mean, because we're talking about Sasi Kuma, is that I, I realize, you know, when, when you look back on your career now, I, I know you will have the medals from uh, the S League or the Singapore Cup that you won. But do you almost take more satisfaction in seeing the men that, or rather the boys or, or, or the teenagers that you coached at that time go on to become the men they are today? So, for example, uh, Iri Iskanda is, is well-revered in the country. Sasi Kuma has gone on to achieve many things outside of football and in the business world. Uh, Iri Iskanda, uh, as Subramani, uh, went on to be a Young Lions assistant coach. All these characters. Ideal Sharin, you mentioned earlier as well. You know, Do you take more satisfaction from that? Well, it's not more. It's, it, you do take satisfaction because I'm actually in contact with probably regularly nine or ten of the lads, that's where social media has its good things. You know, mm. It mightn't be the same if there was no social media and, that, and there are some bad things about social media, but there's also some great things. So I'm in contact with these lads and it does give me great pleasure to see them kick on. I mean, I'll be honest, I, didn't, I would never have picked a deal to be a great coach. Not mm. because he, he had no knowledge, because he was quite shy and quiet. Never mm. said much. It, it kicked people really hard. But, you know, <laughs> and, he was in, and he was an intelligent footballer, but he was quite shy, quite quiet. Whereas AD was more dominant, more vocal. Uh, but AD has gone on to do really well. So it's a delight to see that. You know, Siva Kuma, my left back, they tell me he's a millionaire now. <laughs> you know, so it's good. That's uh, news Ekmar, to me. Egmar's <laughs> coaching. Uh, Perez. He's not coaching. He's on the beach drinking beer, <laughs> bodybuilding body with beautiful girls around him. He will never change. But it's great to know that he's still doing that. Uh, so it, it's really good to have these people in contact. It happened at Parak and JFA as well. I'm still in contact with a lot of players. But the, you know, I'll be quite honest, the good thing is easier thing with Singapore players was language. 
because mm. the English language does make it easier for me because it, you, know, you can get closer to people verbally than if you have that barrier of, of the second language. 100%. The fact that all these players, well, you listed so many players who are still in touch with you, I think speaks volumes of, of the, the friendship you forged almost above and beyond being a coach and a player relationship, right? Just moving well, I, on. Uh, I was going to say, I think it's important that in my house, my medals are in a shoebox. I don't keep them, but the team pictures I've got are on the walls. I have a special room where I have pictures of all the teams that I've worked with and all the players. I find that more valuable than the medal, I'll be honest. Steve, at this point, I have to ask you, you talk about this glorious time you had at Home United. I don't mean to be a downer when I bring this up, but why then did you decide to leave the club and move on? Yeah, no problem. I always believe in being honest. Uh, we're having a great time. We're winning everything, left, right and centre. I had 150 games at home. We won over 100. Uh, you know, as you said, we won quite a lot of trophies and things. I had a brilliant manager uh, called David Concesau, who basically was a CEO off the pitch. And he said to me, Steve, you go and be the CEO on the pitch. Never interfered in anything. Uh, two wonderful chairmen, Tan Boon and Hao Sheng, and they just said to me, look, get on with it. Do what you want. You've got problems, come and see us. We'll mm. sort it out. You know, it was working great. They let me do my job. If I'd failed, they would have sacked me. I've got no problem with that. You know, that's the reality. If I'm going to be sacked, I'm going to be sacked on my own merits. Then a new chairman came in, a third chairman, mm. never even met me. Just didn't even you know come up and say hello I'm your new chairman never met me I can't remember his name that's the effect he had and he appointed he got the first thing he did was sack David he oh. moved David back to the police he was a police mm. person brought in a, a new general manager I, I see you've got a picture behind you there um, of Alex Ferguson I think he thought he was Alex Ferguson this <laughs> because suddenly he started interfering he started mm. telling players going behind me back oh, I'm not picking you next year I'm not signing you or you're not getting as much money and suddenly this wonderful bubble we had of friendship teammates respect all those words were starting to burst Players are coming to see me saying, coach, he's saying this, he's saying that. So I went to the chairman. I said, look, you may as well plan for next year because I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to be here. I can tell you that now. I can't work with people like that. Uh, and it, oh, this fellow had already started lining up another coach <laughs> before I'd even done that. And what was funny was he was lining up the coach and the coach was a mate of mine. So he immediately rang me and told me because as you say, you get, you get, trust or respect mm. amongst each mm. other. Mm. So that, that's the, the reason I went. So I'd had an off, couple of offers and the one from Parak was the best financially because in my game, you have to, because one minute you're employed, then you're sacked and you might not be working again for either three weeks or three years. So you yeah. you have to go where the money is. Parak made me a great offer and I went there for three years. It was, you know, another in different than Singapore, but in, you know, enjoyable in different ways. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful to hear that, you know, you stood up to your principles, right, which is what you you mentioned quite early on in the show. Uh, well, I think what... you've, got to, you've, got to, you've got to basically, you're going to die, die on your feet. Don't live mm. on your knees, you know. Mm. Wow, that's some anecdote that, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, one thing I want to touch on is, uh, you, of course, uh, were, were coaching a talented Home United side, but how competitive was the S-League 
uh, during those years that you uh, that you were there? Oh, very. There was Tampanese, obviously, Gaylang, Woodlands at times. Uh, Sinchi came in, they, and mm. they could have been a better side than they were. I'll tell you a story about Sinchi later. But uh, you know, there was, and we had big crowds. Bishan was full. We'd, and SAF, of course, you, know, you, you mm. can't forget them, you know, the, the army side. You know, you, you, we had four or five top sides at the time. And it was a, every game was hard work. You, you, we only had a couple of easy games a season. Uh, and that's, you know, to put the crowds in. And of course, there were some quality foreigners as well. Um, you, if you're going to have foreigners, have quality. It's better to have two high class than five average. Mm. So, you know, it's that really you know is an important factor. And I've written this quite a few times when I've been a TD in places. I've written about the importance of having foreigners who can attract crowds, who are better than the locals, and are good pros on and off the pitch. Uh, and in that period of time, there was a lot of high-class ties we had. You know, uh, Tertsak, Surajai, Sutty Suksomki, Tarwan, Zico quality players you know so and they brought fans in yeah definitely I, I think a lot of the Thai players at the time uh, are still the ones that we look to as the, the go-to in terms of the standard when it comes to uh, foreigners in the Singapore League uh, but right now you know I, I want to bring the conversation back to current day uh, Singapore football I am sure uh, you know you would know the state of, of the, the Singapore League at the moment um, you, you talked about Bishan Stadium being full. I, I think it's quite a rarity these days that uh, a stadium would be full. I think uh, the Lion City Sailors uh, have had better luck in that, in that regard. But, you know, why do you think the league has fall, fallen off uh, its high days or glory days, you think? A uh, lot of reasons, I think. It's, and it's sad that it has fallen. And the reality is, it has fallen. Because uh, I, I know, for example, the salaries players are getting the less than they were when I was there, 2003. Um, obviously, the thing that comes into it is money. If there's no investment in the league, whether it be government or corporate, the game will go backwards. And that applies all over the world. You know, mm. So if there doesn't seem to be... It used to break my heart when I'd see people spending money on the Premier League you know, from, from Singapore. Why not? You know, uh, there's, a, there's a bloke who owns Valencia, apparently Singaporean. I, I can't. Peter Lim, yeah. Peter Lim. He could buy the league. Never mind just Valencia. <laughs> yeah. Buy the league, bring in elite foreigners again, really get good coaches for the young kids in Singapore, and then we'll get a good Singaporean player abroad. And that would be a greater legacy than a Spanish football team, will he? Oh, madness. You know, he's involved with them and Salford in England. I mean, Salford. Who's heard of Salford? You know, reality. <laughs> you know I mean, so it, it used to drive me mad. When, it used to drive me mad when I saw Norwich City sponsored by Proton, you're the Malaysian car maker. Mm. You know, God, put it into your local football. And I've got to be honest, the other thing is administration. Administration is very important. There's great players, there's great Coaches, you know, I mean, when I say I mean local produced coaches and players. Great. There's even some good referees. Not many, because I was never a fan of referees, you probably know. But um, you know, but administrators, they are so important to the game. Um, you have one now in Singapore called Ben Tan. 
He knows what he's doing. He did superbly in Thailand. But you need people like that who understand football, who understand business, and who understand people. You know, they're very important. And some of the people I had to deal with in Singapore, many of the ones who find me all the time, um, you know, they they didn't understand football. There was a couple there who were trying to have East v West games and things like this. I, I was fined five hundred dollars for saying the beep test was stupid. I'll I'll say it publicly. It was stupid. Uh, you can thank a new a straight Times journalist for that, Jose Raymond. <laughs> I, Jose quoted me, but he was right. I don't mind. I, I never mind being quoted if I say it, and I did. Uh, and because I, I still think it was stupid. I mean, it, it, it was that stupid that Indra, the rule they had meant that, in theory, Indra Sedan, the greatest local goal scorer that, that has been, there has been, wouldn't have played S-League because he couldn't do the beep test in the time they set. So all we did was I got two lads, Manny and Siva Kuma, to literally almost carry him through the beep test. <laughs> wow. And, and the bloke looking at me said, you can't do that. I said, where does it say I can't do that? <laughs> and he looked at me. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you go by the rules, don't you? He said, yeah. I said, well, where does it say you can't be assisted by fellow players? And he, of course, being, you know, being Singapore, and he went by the rules. So we got Indra in, and Indra scored, I think, about 35 goals that season. So, you know, you did, it was just such a stupid, it was almost, and I got told off for saying this as well, it was a racist test. Because the reality is an Indian-based player will pass the beep test all day. Mm. A Malay player, because he has fast twitch fibers, that means he's like lightning, but can't go further than maybe 20 yards. Indra Saddam being an example. You'd have Siva Kuma and Manny strolling through the beep test. You had others like Indra struggling, Fami Abdullah struggling in the beep test. But they were quick and they were good footballers. So it was just, I said, yeah, have tests, but have tests that cover all them, cover speed, cover repeatability of speed, cover strength, all these things. But no, it was just the beep test because someone had read it somewhere that China did it. And then even China stopped doing it. Uh, and in the end, I think they did stop it. But I felt there, that's where you need to have to stand up for what you believe in. I felt it was rubbish. I told them. Later they stopped it, but I still I never got me five hundred back though. Uh, I hope Jose Raymond shared the fine with you at least for quoting you on that uh, Straits Times article. Me, yeah, he owes me Macan said up a few times. <laughs> <laughs> Jose, if you're listening, just you know, get in touch with Steve and sort that one out. Steve, just coming to you now. We talk a lot about uh, Home United and how far the league has come since. Even touched on it earlier. It almost seems like Home United changing to the Lion City Sailors has uh, breathed a new life into local football. Uh, fans are turning up at stadiums. They're signing all the marquee players. They're almost the foremost club in Singapore at the moment. My question to you then is, is there still a sense of affinity or do you feel a bit indifferent because of the name change and things like that? It's a bit of mixed feelings, really. Um, I'm delighted they're putting money into the game. If I didn't say that, I'd be stupid. Uh, I'm delighted that it's bringing in crowds again because that's what's, what's needed. And I'm bringing in good players. But it almost feels like Home United's been airbrushed out of history. Mm. Uh, now, on a personal level, it's not really a problem because, I, I, as my book title was called recently, The Itinerant Coach, 
I'm glad you let me plug that, by the way. <laughs> um, they that's I've been to a lot of different clubs, so I, you you get linked to numbers. But people like I'll say Manny and Aidy again, they deserve to me more respect. Yeah, that team, those are those that team of the three years, and the one that Robert Albert's team won in '99, won the league. They deserve respect, uh, not to be airbrushed. So I'm saying what they did is great. What they're doing is now is great, but don't forget the past. And then again, another example, JDT. JDT have done the same thing, but they haven't forgotten their past. They've mm. looked after ex-players on their coaching staff. They've brought back people. They, they've honoured people of the past. So I've got a lot of respect what JDT are doing, and I do hope that Lion City Sailors do the same. Uh, I would like to just move on now to uh, the rest of your coaching career away from from Singapore uh, I think around the 2008 or 2009 period you did have a stint uh, with Thailand national team uh, I, I want to ask right I mean of course you had three years or so in Singapore football and you got to know a lot of our local footballers but what is the key differences between a Singaporean footballer or, or the culture also as a whole and with Thai footballers um I think and it sounds like a cliche I think the word you could use is probably hunger because in Singapore you have a good life. Let's be totally honest. It's safe. You're, you're, you're economically safe. You're culturally safe. It's good, for, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, mm. if I have a child, I want my child to be brought up safe and well educated, with good hospital, all those things. The ties. It's often not so much now, but in those days, it was a way out of poverty. And you will work and work and work. It's a bit like some of the African players who are coming to play in Asia. It is a way out of poverty. Uh, and it used to happen in England in the 50s and the 60s. It was working class people acquiring wealth through playing football. And I think that is the major difference. I mean, technically, not much different. Uh, but in terms of just that sheer desire, that sheer hunger to work hard. You know, I'll give you an example. At Home United, I used to give the over-30s a day off, uh, which used to make people laugh. And, you know, Perez, he'd go and stay in bed all day. Ekmar would go and play with his family. I had to stop Surachai coming to the training. I said, mm-hmm. no, you can't train. I want you to have a day off because you're over 30. Have a rest. Because that was something we used to do a lot as well. We used to rest a lot at home, which used to make some of the administrators go crazy that were actually resting. So sort of try, he'd go and play golf, but he wouldn't use a buggy. He'd run around the golf course playing <laughs> golf. You know, so you had that mental desire to be super fit, to be successful. And I think that's the, 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 you know, the biggest, biggest difference. And in Thailand, there's not many option Bs. You're a mm. footballer, and after that, you've got nothing. Singapore, you have education. You know, you might have other sports. And again, nothing wrong with that as a society, but if we're talking about football, the hunger sometimes does, 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 does apply. Yep, I want to move along now to another part of your coaching career, uh, which is, of course, in Laos, where you were, of course... Uh, the national coach, and I also believe uh, a technical director there? Yeah, I started off as TD, then evolved into national coach. It, it was all done about moving salaries around. So, uh, mm. But, it, but it, it was a great place. There was some 
you know, it's a tiny country, uh, but uh, some really good administrators, uh, the president, Vipet, uh, the general secretary, Zeband, a superb female administrator, Keo now works at the AFC. They were doing their best. They supported me to the hilt. But the country is endemic with corruption. And that corruption was flowing into football. And you had ex-star players basically trying to infiltrate football and corrupt, you know, match fix and things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so hard because as one of the players said to me, coach, we're going to lose. They know they're going to lose, you know, because when Lau played Korea, there's only one winner, you know. So they, they took the view that, well, if we're going to lose, let's lose in a certain way so we can get some money back. And, mm. you know, and if you put it in perspective, we played Korea in the World Cup qualifiers. The lad who marked Son Hun Ming was on 200 US a month. Okay. Now, <laughs> Son Hun Ming's salary, one of my brighter boys worked out, was the same as the whole 11 in Laos for the whole year. <laughs> that's oh. the difference. You know, yeah. And uh, that's what you're up against. So, and also, as one a very wise bloke said to me once, why should a footballer be honest if the local mm. policeman and the local politician are bent? Mm. You know, they're supposed to be high up in society and they're highly educated and they're corrupt. Why mm. should a relatively lowly educated person, a footballer in many cases in Laos, not be corrupt? You know, so it's difficult. It was a very complex thing. I had four of my team banned for life after I'd left. Now, two of them I knew were fixing. But as Mm. someone said to me, we don't fix in big games, real games. We only fix in friendlies away from home. And that's where they made their money. But in the World Cup games, we gave our best. And these two lads, I couldn't drop them because they were the two best players in the country in those positions. Two others who were banned, I would have put my house on them being honest. Wow. Because, because they were just superb trainers. They were great. They gave everything good characters. And I, I'm, I'm still today to convince one of them is not guilty. He got stitched up, I think. Because that, mm. that's what goes on. You know, it's, it's not an, he possibly did not go along with it. And they stitched him up and brought him mm. into it. Because it's a horrible world of fixing. Uh, as you know, you know. And it goes on. It's not just an Asian problem. It goes on all over the world. Mm. It doesn't go on an EPL because how do you fix, how do you bribe someone who's earning 300000 a week? Yeah. So, But believe me, it can well go on lower leagues in England. All you need to find is one player with a, go- a cocaine problem mm. or a gambling problem, and suddenly you know, you've got a weakness and they will do it. I mean... It, the funniest one I ever saw was in Singapore. Was we played Sinshi, and they had some good players in that time, really good ex-Chinese professionals. We played them, and they put eleven men in their in their half, and we really battled to get through. We got through one nil in the end, and we thought, God, great, they're going to have to come out now and attack us. They stayed there. They stayed, you know, eleven back, and then later. One punter explained to me they probably had a bet on of less than two goals. <laughs> so yeah. nil, 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 or one nil meant nothing to them. It, mm. You know, so and that's what I 
That's why I have to teach. I speak to a lot of people about match fixing in that it's not win or lose. There's so many different shades of spot fixing. And you know the, the number of goals you, people score and things like that. The only thing I would do is I would, which I got in trouble for saying in Malaysia, I would legalize betting because mm. like in Singapore, the profits can go back into the game or they can go back into charity to help orphans or hospitals. In Sing- in Malaysia, the money's going to the bookies. Mm. So, but I got abused like mad. You know, I was called Haram and all sorts. Even though a lot of the people calling me Haram, I knew were betting themselves. Yeah, just know. not publicly. So, yeah, just not publicly, of course. Um, so, you know, that money could have been going to feed the poor, to help. But no, it's gone to the bookies instead to make them buy their third Mercedes instead. You know. <laughs> Steve, sorry, at this point, I just have to ask. You talk yep. about the, the Laosian example, the Lao players yeah. who were on... 200 USD a week or something like that, a month even. Yeah. And then they 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 decide or they're tempted by match fixing. I, I'm not one for it, but as a coach, do you almost understand because it's too good an opportunity? You know what I mean? It's too good an opportunity yeah. to turn down, therefore they turn to it? When I first came into Asia and, and discovered match fixing, uh, that was in Malaysia, and when I first came in in 98, To me, it was black and white. You were a cheat or you weren't. But then I realized the shades of gray. There really is. Because there's a block of people who cheat for money. Just cheat and get, they want a new car or a new house. Well, they to me should be banned for life. I've got no time for them. But what do you do if somebody is threatening your kid? Mm. You've got an eight-year-old kid and they say, does he still go to that primary school? (laughs) <laughs> and you know what it or what you do if you haven't been paid for three months you've got two kids they're living on Maggie Me noodles and someone says you fix this game for me get a penalty in the 48th minute that area and I will give you three months wages what does he do he's got mm. starving kids he's got the wife and the family on him he might have debts building up so it became great to me and obviously couldn't condone it, didn't do it. I, I can honestly say that, you know, uh, never got involved, even though I was offered. Uh, and even when I, but the thing is, what do you do as well? Because I've reported it to the FA in Singapore when I was approached, nothing happened. I reported it to FAM when it happened in, in Parak, nothing happened. So you suddenly realise that you're fighting a losing battle and mm. where like, you have to be bamboo, you have to bend a little sometimes, you, you, you literally, you know, you can't stop it. I don't think you'll ever stop it. While there's money in the game, you will have cheats and you will have people you know, doing fixing. But all you can do is bring in things, A, strict sanctions, if they get caught on the, on the cheaters, uh, that's one way. Like, and I'm, life should be life and not involved anywhere else. Uh, or education programs help. that They do. You know, but, mm. but the most important thing is pay your players on time. You know, pay them. If you offer them $10 a week, pay them $10 a week. Don't offer 15 and pay 5 because it just doesn't work, or, don't, or even worse, don't pay at all. You, you've really, really got to do be honest with people, and that honesty will come back. As I say, you might not get rid of it all, but you might reduce it. And that's all I think you can do is reduce it by being honest, educating people, 
and having some sort of ethical stand. Uh, you, you talk about match fixing, and, I, and I'm sorry that I do have to ask because we, we are a Singaporean football show after yeah. all. Uh, two questions, actually. Uh, during your time in, in the S-League, uh, was it rampant? I mean, w- did you know that there were other clubs or players uh, indulging in match fixing in the S-League at the time? And and would you believe that it's still happening today in, in, in Singapore? Well, the word, the very most important word and the most difficult word is proof. Hmm. There's things I know but can't prove, if that makes sense. And I say prove in a legal sense. I can't go on your team on this podcast and say, I know this player, this coach did this because I could be sued. You could be sued mm. uh, because I can't prove it. But I do know it's right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, there are players in there who are involved in a certain games who told me we were under orders. But they, they, there's also the thing, you, if people give you their trust, you can't betray that trust as well. So if someone tells me something in confidence, I will always keep it. But it, it did go on. I mean, the thing is with home, we were lucky. Home, we were lucky. We were always winning. So it was very rare we lost anyway. But there are games where, I'll be honest, I think we won because the other side were letting goals in. Mm-hmm. That's been, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to say that. I, I, I think of... If, if the other team knew they were going to get beat by home, which was a pretty good chance if you won the lower teams, you just all you've got to do is try and look at, say, for example, the nine-plus goals on the Singapore betting. Then if you can make sure there's nine goals in the game, you can get a guaranteed amount of money. Yep. You know, and that's probably more than your wages. Now, we won quite a few games with nine-plus. It's obviously harder to dictate seven goals or six goals but once you get the nine plus you can relax I mean there was one game where we we got the ninth goal in the game and about 300 blokes walked out on the other side of Bishan and I said to my I said to my assistant why are they leaving we still get some we'll get more goals he said coach they've got the nine goals they knew what was happening but I didn't know what was happening but he did mm-hmm. and these lads over there obviously got their money they got their safe bet so yeah, it, it, there's things like that. I mean, there was, was one game where we beat a side heavily and it wasn't fixing for money. They wanted to get rid of the coach. Wow. One, one of the players told me, well, he walked off the pitch. We'd won. We actually won 10 nil. He said, well, that's got rid of him <laughs> because they didn't like him because he was making them do stupid running. Yeah, and he was doing ridiculous things and finding them. So the players decided, we don't want him. So they lost a few games. He went. Then he got because there were some decent players amongst them. And that's that's the key. It, the, the worst, the best players are usually the fixers because they can control a game. Mm. The lad who's up and down the wing can't much have, have much influence on a game. Mm. Yeah, only little. But the, down the middle, the keeper... Centre backs, the strikers, they're the ones that can put the fix in. And they have to also be powerful in the dressing room to control the others. So, mm. you know, that, that is the key. You've got to find who the right, where my potential people had like AD and Manny didn't do that. And Egmar and Perez, mm. they didn't need to. They were they had good ethics, well paid, on time. So that was never an issue in our side. But I certainly think we did benefit from it. And I'll be honest, we've lost games in Malaysia where I found out later it was fixed. You know, just, wow. you know and won some. Of course. 
very first game I learned about, I was walking off the pitch and a foreigner walked up to me and said, you're going to win 2-0. And I said, how do you know? He says, well, I speak Bahasa. They don't know that. You know, I understand Bahasa. And we scored in the 84th and the 89th minute. So we were never going to get a third. We didn't wow. need to anyway. Mm. They weren't going to score because they'd done it on the, the over-under bet. It was yeah. going to be a two-goal spread. They got what they wanted. Everyone was happy. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, that, that's quite a... I, I mean, as someone who loves football, I, I think uh, it's also important not to be naive in that sense. Uh, and I do think it's an eye-opener for, for some. And sorry to those who are listening who uh, will have to listen to this and, and realize that, wow, you know, sometimes the, the beautiful game is not so... Beautiful, Beautiful after all. Um, it goes on in Italy. In you know, Italy's famous for it. It's, it's happened in Spain. It happens in Croatia. It's ha- Liverpool and Man United were once banned for match fixing in the mm. early 1900s. You know, so it's not an Asian problem. It's a world football problem. So you know, there's no one should have a moral standpoint on that. They should just try and reduce it as much as we can. Definitely agree with you. Uh, our last question of, of the interview itself is, um, I wanted to ask, you know, have you decided on, on you know, actually giving up your, your, your coaching uh, in a sense of uh, retiring or, or do you feel like you still have some way to go in, in the coaching world? No, I, I returned home to UK because basically my mum is 90 and obviously you know, you've got to do the right thing. She's a widow, I'm an only child. And plus my daughter's reaching education uh she's doing like english a level so that was important but you, you never want to say no because it pulls you you know I, I miss the game i miss the dressing room you miss the excitement i don't miss the administrators i don't miss the journalists uh i want to say that too there was a couple of great journalists in singapore and there was a couple who basically told lies about me I'll be honest. Mm. Uh, I mean, one of them that told lies about me, he ended up in jail for match fixing. Um, I think his name was Bing. I think it was. Uh, He worked for the new paper. Uh, Eric Ding. Eric Ding. uh, Yeah, yeah, Eric Ding. He told lies about me. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. he was backed by his editor. Uh, One of the editors in Singapore didn't like me Mm -hmm. because I wrote him a letter saying, come down training with me. Come and see what you're saying is wrong. Uh, Leonard Thomas, his name was. Mm-hmm. And I said, you can't, he called my players unfit. I said, well, come to training and watch how hard they work. Hmm. And I'll tell you, these guys aren't unfit. It, they, they, you know, they're, they're very fit. And I said, I can prove it scientifically. And so he never gave me a good article ever. But I mean, that's, so it goes on. But, and you had good ones, you know, like Jose and people like that. And to be honest, some of the Chinese girls were very good journalists, I found, in Singapore, because they wrote the facts. You know, yep, so, yep. yeah, but you know, it, it was it was better than India. I'll be honest, because it, where India, when I was in Calcutta, they were just hilarious. I would have a press conference every day with television stations and gen. I'd have lads making up stories in the Bengali newspapers. I complained <laughs> once to the editor. I said, "That's a lie." He didn't even speak to me. He wasn't there. He said, oh, don't worry. If he didn't put a story in, he didn't get paid. Oh, wow. And that, and that was the justification for the pack of lies about the story. Now, at least in Singapore, there was certain ethics. You know, so that wasn't too bad. Uh, I want to end off the, the interview by asking something that's more current. 
which you touched on quite early on in the show where, where you said that, you know, Idil Sharin, uh, given what he has done uh, at Qatar, you know, deserves a shout for the Singapore national team job. Of course, earlier today, um, Katsuma Yoshida, who has been at the helm, you know, announced his resignation. So uh, the role is vacant now. Um, there will be conversations on whether it should go to a local or it should go to a foreigner. Uh, what is your stand and do you feel like Ideal Sharon is ready for that job? Yeah, I think it should go to a local now um, because if you don't give a local a chance, then when's it going to happen? That, that, mm. That's the thing there. Uh, and you've got to be realistic. They were trying to get rid of this coach before the Suzuki because he hadn't won. He was getting abused and all sorts. You know, I don't know the bloke at all. But that one magnificent game in the semis he suddenly become a hero. <laughs> and then suddenly he's not stupid. He's realised, hey, maybe I can get some more money out of this and, and go because I'm going to get sacked eventually anyway. But, I mean, there's a reality that football can swing from left to right within days. That one game turned him and some of the players who were getting abused are getting called all sorts by the fans, by social media and by the mainstream media suddenly became wonderful. Yeah, which is crazy. They're the same people with the same players. You, you, you've got to treat them objectively. So I think if you're going to have a new coach, I, I certainly think that a deal has got a track record. He's done it in a tough league. He's jumped out of his comfort zone. He speaks Bahasa. He speaks English fluently. He understands the players. Uh, and so give him a chance because, you know, that is a, the real world. You know, and don't expect him to qualify for the World Cup because because <laughs> yeah. that's not going to happen. Yeah, the only yeah. people who should be qualifying is possibly Vietnam or Thailand. And I say that because 2026 will have 48 teams in. So they've got... A not only that, they've got populations of over 60 million people. Mm. Singapore has got, is it four or five million people? Yep. So, Probably and five, of which... Yeah. And of which a lot of that population, the football population, don't play football. They go mm. into education rather than football. So Singapore has got to be realistic in its expectations. T to me, Singapore's expectations are to do well and be the best in ASEAN. Mm. Maybe do okay in Asia. Vietnam and Thailand should be saying, and Indonesia, because they, if they get organized, they could be great. They should be. They should be saying, "Let's go for the World Cup 2026. Let's go for the Asian Cup before that." You know, those three. They're, they're the three big boys based on population, based on poverty as well. You know, uh, and that 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 should be their realistic aim. We are now moving on to the final segment, which is a rapid fire round. Five questions that uh, require quite quick answers from you. Uh, I'll right. start it off uh, first by asking, you know, who is the best player you've coached in Singapore? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me <laughs> the best player ever, and that would have been Nicholas Anelka. Um, best player in Singapore, I'd probably say Suti Suksomkit or Perez. Different players. Fair enough. Okay, next one. One player you wish you had at Home United? I tried to sign Turd Sack. Okay. Uh, he agreed with me, shook hands with me, and then went and signed for the army instead. I never, <laughs> I never forgave him. What a player he would have been. Good player. Yeah. Great player. 
yeah. my next question is what is your best memory in Singapore? Oh, I can't tell you that because my mum's still alive. (laughs) 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 Um, And I've got a daughter. Uh, The best memory, probably winning the double. I've got to be honest. Winning the double was one. And the last game when we won the cup, cup, and I took great pleasure in getting the last medal and not giving it to the new manager, but taking it up to give it to David Consasau, the previous manager. So I thought that, that gave me great personal pleasure. Nice. You know, I'm going out with a bang. Great to hear. I, I love the part of justice almost served on Steve yes. Darby's yeah. terms. You got to love yeah. it. Uh, moving on to question number four. One regret of your career. Oh, there are many. Uh, you have to judge, I always work. I, I always say there's better coaches than me unemployed and there's bigger con men than me made millions out of the game. Uh, so... So much in coaching is right place, right time. I have no regrets on where I've been. I would love to have won more. I'd love to have coached at a higher level. I got my dream. I coached at the World Cup in terms of the qualification. I'd love to have coached in the World Cup, of course, in the actual World Cup. You know, so that, that's that, that's sort of like the regret. Never got to an actual World Cup. I would love to say the EPL. Love to. I mean, but you know, I was never a great player. and. If you're in England now, you've got to be a foreigner. <laughs> so if I was Stefano Darbizio, I might have a chance. <laughs> I, feel, I feel a bit like a Singaporean coach. You know, all those all Matt Sales and Angmos came in when there were some good Singaporean coaches like Sivaji, top coach, people like him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my final question would be, what is your wish for Singapore football? Oh, to get full houses. Peter Lim to buy the league <laughs> and, in, and invest in the whole league so the whole league gives, gives it the strength it deserves and so that you won't be obsessed with the Premier League Singapore, you can be obsessed with, with the Premier League but and the Singapore League that would be my dream yeah. Wonderful uh, Steve I, I can't emphasise how much uh, of gratitude that we have for, for you coming on the show um, plenty of good stories and most importantly I think we learned a lot from you today in terms of the footballing world not just in Singapore uh, in terms of just the match fixing elements of it uh, I really really appreciate you coming on the show today thank you so much great thank you I enjoyed it and let's hope some of my dreams of Singapore come true Amen thank you so much Steve yeah.